You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome back Avishai Green, Israeli political scientist, to talk about the recent wave of protests in Israel against judicial reforms. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking to Avishai Green about protests in Israel. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Hey, are you interested in taking part in a discussion with Marxist Humanist Initiative? If so, you should know that we occasionally have Skype meetings where we invite outsiders to uh, take part in the meeting. Meetings take place on some Sundays between 1 and 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The next one is this Sunday, Sunday, May 14th, and we'll be discussing new workers' struggles in Canada. If you want to be invited, you need to write to us immediately, telling us a little bit about why you're interested in MHI and asking to attend, and also send your Skype name or address. Uh, The meeting after that will be Sunday, May 28th, and that'll be about Ireland on the 25th anniversary of the Peace Accords, and also the ongoing crisis in England, and uh, you need to apply for an invitation. You will want to write to MHI at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, and that's Marxist Humanist Initiative, all one word. Yesterday on May 9th, Donald Trump was found liable for sexual assault and defamation in a civil case brought against him in New York by E. Jean Carroll in relation to a, a sexual assault which took place in the 90s. The jury awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million in this civil case. Now, this is a civil case, not a criminal case, because the statute of limitations has long since passed for this assault. But one of the interesting things about this story is that because of a new law that was just passed last year in New York State called the Adult Survivors Act, victims of sexual assault are given a one-year window to try to hold their attackers liable in uh, civil courts. They can basically sue them for sexual assault. The day this law was passed in New York last year, uh, E. Jean Carroll filed this suit against Trump. And now after an extremely short deliberation, how long did the jury deliberate? Less than three hours. It was unbelievable. It was like a New York minute, you know? Yeah, the speed of the jury's decision, the fact that they awarded her $5 million is a huge victory, not just for Carol, but for the whole Me Too movement, um, for the whole women's movement. It's so rare for people to face consequences for sexual assault, especially things that happened in the past. Um, Even the fact that this law was passed uh, last year allowing survivors of sexual assault to come forward and, and file civil cases, this is not a 
not a usual thing to see. And it seems to be clearly the result of the Me Too movement. It followed right after a similar bill for child sex assault survivors, which several states have passed recently in the wake of like, we you know, revelations about the Catholic Church's sex abuse scandal and child sex abuse in athletics. But I think that the fact that this is happening at all, that's in a sexual assault that took place decades ago, can be taken seriously in the courts and that a jury can find in favor of the victim is a remarkable thing. And the fact that it was a successful suit against one of the most powerful people in the world is really striking. A, a real victory for survivors of sexual assault, a real victory for the Me Too movement. And I think that one of the most striking things about the whole trial for me, and I think probably for a lot of people, was Trump's taped deposition that, that was played for the jury. If you haven't watched it, it's easy to find on YouTube. It was just like incredible how little regard Trump had for the seriousness of the issues at stake at all. He was so lewd and arrogant for the entire deposition. I could see that the jury could have completely based their verdict just on a judgment of Trump's character and how he acted in this deposition. I saw E. Jean Carroll and her lead attorney, Roberta Kaplan, on TV this morning. They were interviewed. And Roberta Kaplan said that the playing of that tape deposition from Trump, she thought, was a major factor in the, the jury's verdict. You know, there were two major things there. One where he said stars being able to grab women by the pussy uh, has been going on for a million years, fortunately or unfortunately. So she made something of that. And also he had claimed that, of course, he could not have, you know, raped E. Jean Carroll because she wasn't his type. And then he mistook her for, in a picture, mistook her for one of his wives and then claimed that the picture was blurry but of course the picture was not blurry so you know typical trump but what eching carroll emphasized was that this verdict blew away the need to be a perfect victim to succeed in 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 a, in a prosecution or in in sexual assault you know she didn't scream she didn't become a wallflower after the assault and she didn't record it in her diary and and she didn't act like the perfect victim nonetheless the jury believed her they didn't believe anything coming down from trump's lawyer nor trump nor any of that well the other thing in the deposition is that he he insulted the lawyer and saying she wasn't his type either in the deposition. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. They're, play, they're playing it every 15 minutes. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely incredible. The arrogance. You can't be taking the situation seriously if you're taking the time to in, insult the female lawyer and say she's not your type during a rape deposition over being accused of rape. I mean, just the arrogance is just jaw dropping how little he cares about this issue at all. It must have been so clear to the jury, like if they didn't already know how vapid and awful his character was, it was just written all over the deposition. It was so obvious. Yeah, we know that it had to be obvious because they came in with a verdict in less than three hours. I mean, you, you got to like put down your bag. Somebody's got to make coffee. Yeah. You have to appoint a four-person jury. You got to fill out the forms. You got to put in n number values for how much he owes. What's left is, yeah, okay, you know, how, how many of you think he did it? Everybody raised their hands. I mean, there, there's, there's not time for much in less than three hours. So it, yeah. it was clear yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, what, what I found interesting, because I didn't know it until listening to Roberta Cap 
Kaplan, the main lawyer for Eugene Carroll, is that most of the members of the jury were not from New York City. Yeah, one was from Manhattan, one was from the Bronx, so those are New York City, and the other seven jurors not from New York City. And, and the, the one from the Bronx is a right-wing conspiracy theorist type, so... Yeah, so it wasn't all just liberal New York anti-Trumpers. There were 10 specific counts total, and nine of them went exactly for E. Jean Carroll. The one that came first that they said no on is that there was not proof to them a basis of a preponderance of evidence that he committed rape. And there's just been a lot of opinion uh, mongering and speculation as to why that was. And I've heard everything from, well, they just compromised, to the word rape is too scary, to the fact that E. Jean Carroll was kind of unclear about that in her testimony. She had a lot of corroboration from people she spoke to about the attack at the time, and they didn't do anything specifically to corroborate rape. But the, the point is really that rape has a very specific legal meaning in New York, which is that uh, as distinct from sexual abuse or sexual assault, which is what he was found liable of, to be rape, you actually have to have penetration. And so what the jury is saying is we did not find, you know, on the basis of preponderance of evidence that we could conclude that that took place. Because all we have is uh, E. Jean Carroll saying it, and she's a bit fuzzy on the specifics there. So I don't know why the jury came to that verdict, but it doesn't mean a hell of a lot, except as a PR thing where Trump can say, you know, I wasn't found guilty of rape. But he he's none too happy. The man's screaming on his fake Twitter, all caps. He's back to defaming her. He's back to saying this never happened. I don't know who this woman is, <laughs> you know, and he's there, you know, they get, they got this photograph of him from around that time where he's in the same photograph with her. Uh, I hope she, she sues him again for defamation. Yeah. It's remarkable to see him making the same sorts of comments that he just lost the lawsuit over. He doesn't seem to have any, any ability to control his own behavior or to learn from mistakes because he's just not used to facing consequences. And now finally, one of his victims has gotten the better of him. And uh, it feels like a real victory for uh, victims of assault and for the women's movement, for the Me Too movement. Well, you know, on the Me Too, it's very interesting because Me Too is sometimes thought to have started with Harvey Weinstein. But as people were saying, that was really the culmination of a year of stuff beforehand, which was all Trump. Trump saying blood was coming out of her wherever, and he was insulting the women from the talent show, and I never said anything about anybody except for Rosie O'Donnell, and then, of course, the Access Hollywood tape, which was a, a, a main component of, of this trial that just took place. And what did that lead to? When the moment Trump wins the Electoral College, you got the resistance forming. You got the Women's March three, five million people turn out. So there was already tremendous anger, tremendous fear, mobilization. And so Me Too is, is largely a product of Donald Trump having set it in motion. So this is, you know, karma. This is what goes around, comes around. I mean, one question is whether $5 million is going to be painful for Trump or he's can fundraise so much off the back of all these things that it doesn't actually amount to anything. But I would suspect that all these legal fees 
and this $5 million settlement will be painful to him, but I don't really know. Well, he has no businesses to speak of anymore except for fundraising and, you know, selling merch. That That's it. Nobody in the real estate world or anything else licensing, they, they don't want to go near him. So that's one issue. But I tell you, the Republicans seem to me more between a rock and a hard place than ever, because even if the Trump base doesn't care and OANN and Newsmax and Fox, you know, are downplaying it as they are, there are going to be enough people, I think, who are just like revolted and horrified and are going to say, no, not doing it again. I'm not voting for Trump. I'm not going to vote at all. I'm going to vote for the other guy, whatever it might be. And you you lose enough support, even if it's a little bit, there's a tipping point. And I think I think they've they've reached that tipping point between this and the fight back on, on abortion. I think it's going to be very, very hard for them. And you're already getting, you know, Republican senators and stuff saying that the problem is they can't do anything. He's going to win the, the, the primary because the base is all in, in support of him. But I, I think they're going to have a tremendous amount of trouble in the general election. Yeah, that is the main problem facing the Republican Party. It works in the primary. It doesn't work in the general election. So the only plan is to just undermine democracy. Right. And there are cute operators like DeSantis and others that think that they can like go hard right and be more MAGA than MAGA in the primary and then pivot. It's, it's not working for DeSantis. It's not going to work. There is just such a stench now with Trump between the Alvin Bragg indictment, this jury decision where nine regular people take less than three hours to say, yeah, he did it. He's lying. She's telling the truth. We're going to give her $5 million in the case where like, it's like, it's not even about the money. They didn't even ask for for a specific amount of money. This is going to dog him. I, I can't see how he digs his way out of this. I mean, I've seen him dig his way out of a lot, but I, and he'll, you know, he's got uh, the undying support of a, of a fascist base. But when the whole party gets known as the rape Republican party, they're, they're in deep trouble. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we will revisit these topics a lot more in the future as uh, more consequences may be on the horizon for Trump this year. Uh, but now we're going to get to our main event, our interview with Avishai Green about the protest movement against proposed judicial reforms in Israel. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Avishai Green. This is his second time on the podcast. Our regular listeners will perhaps remember a conversation we probably had over a year ago with uh, Avishai about an essay he wrote called Speaking Bullshit to Power. Avishai is a doctoral candidate in political science at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And since he has expertise in politics and lives in Jerusalem, we thought it would be good to have him on the podcast to talk about all the mass protests going on in Israel right now around uh, these proposed judicial reforms. Um, so Avishai, it was very nice to, to offer to come back on the podcast and help us understand some of the political dynamics going on in Israel right now. Hey, hi, Brendan. Hi, Andrew. Uh, great to be back. I'd like to start with just a few basic questions to set the stage so that our listeners are up to speed and then we can get into the heavier uh, issues a bit later. 
what we're talking about is the new government's proposed uh, judicial reform legislation, the massive and growing, <laughs> never-ending uh, protest against this, and where this is all headed. So what is the proposed judicial reform legislation about? So the pr proposed judicial reform legislation is officially, if you ask them, it's about reforming the judiciary in a way that will increase the power of the people, by which they mean parliament, the Knesset, and rein in the judiciary, which um, the line goes is overreaching. And the way that this is done is that is it's not one thing. It's actually a whole really long and extensive and very radical range of proposed reforms that if implemented would completely make the judiciary completely toothless. And that is why what it really is about is just consolidating power in a way that would basically make Israel not a democracy and by any measure. And the reason I say that is because in the basic checks and balances of democracy, Israel is starting off is at quite a weak position. We don't really have any separation between the legislative and the executive. They're fused together. Basically, the government is formed outside of the parliament. And once you have a majority in one, you basically have it in the other. So there's no checks and balances there. And we have only have one parliament, unlike the US where you have House of Representatives in the Senate, we only have one. Maybe the main thing is we don't have a constitution. And so really, the basically the only check and balance that we have at the moment on the executive branch um, and the legislative branch together is the judicial branch and proposed judicial reform would completely eliminate that and it would actually do it several times over. Um, it's it's extremely far reaching. So it would um, pass a law that would allow the parliament, the Knesset to override any decision by the Supreme Court. It would allow parliament to uh, the coalition to name its judges which is different than the system we have now, which is a system where there's a needs to be a consensus over naming judges, and it would allow uh, political appointments, which is not the system we have at the moment. So it would really do a lot of things all together, all at once, that even any of them alone would really give whoever's in power pretty much unfettered power. Netanyahu is all in favor of this judicial reform. What's in it for him? Um, he wants to stay out of jail is what's in it for him. He's been on trial for three years now. He's been under indictment for, I believe, four years. And um, the whole Israeli political system has basically been bent to his will to stay out of jail the last few years. Uh, he's done a lot of things politically that are very much motivated by that. And this judicial reform is about that for him in two main ways. One is, if it passes, he'll be able to stay out of jail in a few different ways. Um, first of all, as I mentioned, the government will have control over naming judges, which they don't at the moment, at least they don't on their own. But if it would pass, he could basically name whoever he wants. And it's a foregone conclusion that if he will be found guilty in this case, he will appeal it to the Supreme Court. And then in this scenario, it would be with judges that he's named. But there are other more creative ways that he could also do it. He could name his own attorney general, switch attorney generals, which is not something that is done at the moment, but he could do that and then have the attorney general withdraw the indictment. Or he could do even more creative things. Because basically the thing to understand is once this reform passes, there really is no limit on what the government can do. Because again, we don't have a constitution. So uh, theoretically, they could, the day after it passes, pass a law that anyone named Benjamin can't go to jail. And really no one could do anything about it if they had 61 votes, which is the bare majority. 
I'm not saying they do that, but something that they have openly talked about doing is uh, literally just canceling one of the main criminal offenses that he is accused of, which is breach of uh, trust, I believe it's, is the term. They had already as a proposal to just cancel that as an offense. They say it's too vague. And once that would happen, he would automatically be no longer on the hook for, for that. So there's really a whole host of ways. And that's the, that's the direct way in which he's interested in this judicial reform. And the second has to do with his, um, with his coalition, which is in order to go along with his personal desires and needs, he is beholden to the most uh, far-right coalition this country has ever had. And he has partners who are interested in this reform for other reasons. And in that sense, this reform is sort of, it's a deal. It's a deal that's being done between him and other partners who are even more extreme in other ways and have their own reasons for wanting this reform. Yeah. Right. We, we in the United States are kind of familiar with heads of the government trying to game the judiciary to stay out of prison and other things like that. But like you, you say, I mean, Netanyahu was trying to escape uh, bribery conviction and, and jailing and stuff. But a lot of the right wing in Israel uh, is also in favor of this proposed so-called judicial reform. And there were small protests and recently large protests by the right wing in favor of the legislation. And these people have got their, their own motivations, presumably that are different from Netanyahu's. Why has this proposed legislation become popular within the right generally? So I think there are three actors or groups that are worth highlighting and coming together and pushing this thing, or even four. One being, as I said, Netanyahu, and he does have a core of like diehard supporters. We call them Bibistim. They often call themselves that. People whose main really political identity is supporting him, much like Trump uh, Republicans. So there definitely are people who want it because he wants it. But that being said, the more more substantial actors are. So this proposal was written by a think tank that is funded by American libertarians here in Israel. It's called the Kohelet Forum. It's funded by the Tikva Fund. It's American Jews that are very much the right wing part of the Republican Party, the libertarians, and they have a very far right vision for Israel, which they've been working at for years. And they've been doing it very, very effectively behind the scenes. Most people have never heard of them until a few months ago. They've been doing it in a lot of ways. And, and they literally wrote this plan and they did it because they have you know, this vision for Israel that is on the one hand, a libertarian vision of a state in which the government or the administrative state, maybe I should say, has very little power and there's, there's very little regulation, unfettered free markets and all of that. And on the other hand, it's also a very nationalist vision that they have about having a nationalist Jewish state that can do what it wants. So that's their motivation. And that leads into the next group, which is very substantial, which is um, the settlers, the settler block in Israeli society. They're interested in this plan because the Supreme Court has been historically one of the main impediments towards Israel annexing the West Bank and basically right. doing whatever it wants. It's been a check and balance. And, uh, you know, by no means has it stopped the occupation, but um, it has restrained it in some senses. And they have a belief which is justified coupled with a 
paranoia, which is not exactly justified that um, once the Supreme Court is out of the way, they'll be able to annex the West Bank, which is true, and they'll also be able to um, solve all their problems with the Palestinians, which is not true. It's a fantasy. But that's why they're interested in it. And, and that is that is actually a part of the population. Like the libertarians I was talking about, that doesn't really represent an electorate. It really is a small, motivated, influential group of people behind the scenes. But settlers, they're a minority of population, but there definitely is a public there. And, and you mentioned the demonstrations. I believe that there was a demonstration last week, which really was quite large. I believe it was by and large, that's who came. It was um, the settler, the religious uh, kind of extremist part of the population. And the last group are... Um, can, can you hold just a second? Sorry. Yes. You tied in word settler to yes. occupation and the West yes. Bank. And I'm not sure that everybody knows the connection between those three things. Okay. So if you could just explain that a little bit. Okay, I'll try. Since uh, 1967, the Six Day War, Israel has military control of the West Bank, which is this large area on the eastern side of Israel, um, the West Bank of the Jordan River, it's between Israel and Jordan. And it's this large area that is not part of Israel, but we have military control of, and there is an ongoing project, a settlement project of Israeli motivated ideological nationalists that have been going and settling there for decades now in order to, as they say it, you know, set facts on the ground or, and turn it into part of Israel. And their vision is, is having it be part of Israel, in fact, their vision is even more far-reaching than that. They talk about the biblical Israel, the greater Israel, which is which is a lot larger. It actually includes modern-day Jordan, and like that's really quite out there. That's a crazy vision. But what isn't fortunately crazy is the West Bank, because of all these settlements, it's only deepened the military occupation because once you have a Jewish settlement there, then the military protects it. And it's this sort of this ongoing process uh, by which this dedicated ideological group, which is a minority in Israeli society, but has really for decades now been able to, they've been very successful in uh, deepening the military occupation of the West Bank. And their at least immediate goal is having Israel annex those parts and having them become part of the country, very much ignoring the question of what will happen with the majority of people who live there, um, who are Palestinians, of course, and are not citizens of Israel. And I, I don't think they're planning to make them citizens once we annex them. That's not the idea. The idea is that they would, I guess, <clears throat> be non-citizens and then yeah, that, 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 that really is kind of, for liberal Israelis like me, that's kind of the nightmare scenario because then we really would be basically officially an apartheid state with a, a large population that has no rights, whereas now they're not part of the country and we can at least hope, people like, I, like myself do, that uh, one day they'll have their own country that we can have peace with. So those are sort of the competing visions. And the settlers, as I said, have been very successful and they see overturning the power of the judiciary to block whatever they want to do in the West Bank as, uh, as an important part of their plan. Part of it is, is less rational as well. I, I, there, I think there's a feeling among the segment of the population of anger and alienation at what they see as sort of liberal institutions of Israel. Almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago, we Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip, which is on the other side, and it's another area that we um, conquered in 1967. And, and when we pulled out of there, we uh, evacuated um, several thousand settlers that were there from their homes. 
And that very much is still a trauma for this segment of the population. And, and, and you hear all the time now when they're talking about the judicial reform and, and people say to them, you know, this is such a dangerous plan, it will harm minorities. And a refrain that you hear again and again is, oh, where were you guys in, in the disengagement? Where were you guys in 2005? Uh, their claim being, you know, the Supreme Court, you say the Supreme Court protects minorities. It didn't protect us from being evacuated back then. So, so now basically we're, we're, it's time for revenge. And in that sense, it's also very emotional and, and tribal um, and not only a rational plan. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. I, I'm sorry for the interruption, but I thought it was helpful. So no, you're basically sure. talking okay. about uh, pillars of support for the so-called judicial reform on the right, and you said there are the diehard supporters of Netanyahu, and right. they want it because they want to help him. You said that there's this libertarian think tank funded by U.S. money, and yeah. they really designed the, the whole project. And then you talked about the settlers movement, and there's a fourth one. That you're right. About to the fourth one are the Chavidim, as we call them, who are the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And they're a very sort of secluded group in Israeli society by choice. They're very um, insular, and they, they live quite separately in many ways from the rest of society. And they have their own interests and their own, their own political interests. And the uh, pressing thing for them is they basically don't go to the, to the military. We have a mandatory military draft for Jews in this country, but they've been more or less exempt of it for, for decades, but not in an official way exactly. It's sort of the result of all kinds of temporary agreements that were made, and, and they want to make this permanent, and they want to make it official and allowed. It's, it's kind of a complicated issue, but just for, I'll say one sentence, the, the status quo at the moment is the way that they get out of the military is if they are in a yeshiva and, and study Torah, study the Bible. So that's what they do. And some of them do that because that's what they want to do. But in fact, many of them, because that's the status quo, basically have to be in yeshiva, even if they're not suited for it, in order to not go to the military, which they don't want to go to because they are very afraid of um, assimilating and what will happen to them there with the rest of society. So basically what they want is to pass and, and the women, And the women get yes. out because of issues of so-called modesty, right? Correct. Um, religious women have an easy time getting out, even not ultra-Orthodox religious women, if they don't want to go, they, they can get out because of that. But the men are very afraid of, I mean, I should say the rabbis are very afraid of having the men go and being in mixed units with the rest of Israeli society, specifically being with women, which is a big, big issue. For all of these reasons, they want to pass a law that basically says they, they just don't have to go and they don't have to go and pretend that they're studying Torah or anything. They just don't have to go, period. And they think that if they would pass such a law now, it would be overturned by the Supreme Court because it, ha it has happened before. Something similar has happened before. The Supreme Court overturned a earlier attempt of theirs to, to do something similar years ago. And for that reason, their uh, political representation is pretty laser focused on passing uh, the override clause, which I mentioned earlier, so that they will be able to pass this law. And then if the Supreme Court cancels the law, overturns the law, they'll be able to immediately, with a simple majority, uh, I don't know if I stressed this before, but the override clause that's being talked about is, is a simple majority override. You don't need two thirds or anything like that. Any majority, is a 51% majority, would be able to overturn any attempts by the Supreme Court to rein in such decisions. So that's their 
interest. All the things I'm saying are um, the immediate talked about interests, the ones that are very clear, like the ones that are in their um, coalition agreements that they've talked about passing in the first year and so on. But, but I do think the main thing to stress is that if they were, if they will, will pass this judicial reform, then there really is no limit to what they can do afterwards. So, you know, the settlers want to annex the West Bank. They're, they're pretty clear about that. They're not, they're not ashamed of that. But there are a lot of, as I mentioned, this is the most far right and the most religious coalition we've ever had. And, and there are voices in it that are extremely homophobic, for example, like not, not just in a passive way, but there's, there's a small party, but a party that is part of the coalition. And one of them, in fact, was made a minister. That's explicitly homophobic. That's basically all, all that it's about. And they have things they want to pass. There's a lot of um, very, uh, let's say, not feminist um, parts of the coalition that have all kinds of things that they're interested in doing. And the ultra-Orthodox, who I just mentioned, you know, the army is the thing that right now they're very focused on, but they have many, many aspirations for how this country should look that are, you know, much more closer, that, that are not a democracy or much closer to a theocracy than a democracy. The, the libertarians, of course, have a lot of things they want to do. The point I'm trying to make is that once this passes, there really won't be any limit to what they will be able to do. We, we've seen a lot of pictures and headlines about pretty large and sustained and growing public protests against these judicial reforms. And probably most listeners can intuit what those concerns are that people have based on your description of the reforms. But apparently also there's polling that a lot of people in Israel do want some kind of judicial reform, but not these particular reforms. So if it's true that there's a lot of support for judicial reform, what's that about? And then like, what are the main uh, reasons behind the opposition to the re this current re proposals for reform? Yeah, there are polls that show that a lot of Israelis support some kind of judicial reform. I think it's the result of two things. One is that there definitely are, you know, real problems in the judicial system, but like any other system. But but there are problems in Israel. There's a central issue which has to do with um, the backlog in the system. Um, trials here um, can take years. In fact, even trials like really important ones, like the prime minister's trial, Netanyahu has been on trial for three years and there's really is no end in sight. It's gonna go for at least another year. And so that's something that uh, obviously a lot of people are angry at and there are other issues, but it's very important to note that the reform has nothing to do with this. It does not address this in any way. But the other part is that there has been a successful uh, right-wing years-long propaganda campaign against the judiciary, which I think has worked on two levels. I think it's convinced people who are right wing, it's convinced them that the judiciary is using uh, terms that you may be familiar with in the US as part of the, the deep state, liberal deep state, that its members are all left wing, they're all liberal, and governments, especially right wing governments, have it's been a very useful punching bag for them to anytime they don't succeed at anything to point at, at the Supreme Court and say, well, you know, they stopped us or we couldn't do this because we knew they would overturn it. Just this week, I heard a member of parliament being interviewed and, and asked, you know, what do you guys have to show? You know, you've been in power for a few months now and you really haven't advanced in any of the things you've promised. And he, he literally just said, yes, but we're not in power. The Supreme Court is, is the one who's in power. So it's their fault. So in that sense, it's very useful. And, and there have been a lot of people that have been convinced that there is some problem and some reform is needed, even if 
when you actually ask people what it is, uh, it doesn't have much to do with what's being proposed, except if you're very, very ideologically, um, you have been convinced that, you know, basically the judiciary is a left-wing cabal and it just there just needs to be majoritarian rule and, and that's it, which, which is basically the philosophy behind it. So the other thing you asked me is, is why there's opposition to it. Um, so yeah, as you gestured, I think you can intuit why why there is opposition to it, but I think what I'll say is that I, I think that the coalition and Netanyahu made a very fundamental strategic mistake. You know, we had political gridlock here for four years. This was the fifth election after we had four elections that were basically deadlocked and um, almost nobody won. And suddenly this election, there was a clear victory. There's 64 seats for the coalition versus 56 not actually representing a large majority of the people because of reasons that have to do with kind of wasted votes, parties that didn't pass the minimum threshold. The actual vote distribution didn't change from the past four years in which basically the country is 50-50. Is but anyway, for political reasons, there's the, there was this decisive victory. And I, I think that they really, it kind of got to their head and they went with this very expansive, very radical reform all at once. And at the same time, we're very open about the other things that they want to do and are going to do once this reform has passed. So um, all of the misogynistic, homophobic, racist, openly racist parts of the government have, have been very kind of open about, you know, it's our turn and we're going to we're going to rule now and you can't stop us. Every other day, there's like a law proposal that's that one of them offers that, that are really every one of them is more extreme than the other. And all of this goes to say that I think they moved so quickly and so strongly and they didn't uh, anticipate what the public reaction to that would be, which is very, very widespread anger. And, and I would say, you know, people are very, very afraid. You know, if they would have moved maybe in a slower way, I, I don't think most people would have noticed if they would just you know, changed the composition of the committee that names the judicial, the judges. Like most people don't really know much about that. But um, when they're doing everything all at once, it's managed to scare the LGBTQ community. It's managed to, to scare uh, women. It's managed to um, anger the large sector of the population, which is military reservists who, um, you know, see the long-standing uh, contract, as it were, between them and the country sort of being trampled with the ultra-Orthodox just seeking to formalize their exemptions. It's very much angered and frightened, perhaps more the very influential high-tech sector in Israel, which has been saying for months, you know, once you pass this, we're no longer going to be a democracy and we're no longer going to be a country where foreign countries and foreign people want to invest. Our sector is entirely dependent on that and it's just going to kill the high-tech sector, which is very influential. And all of these disparate, um, and I should say traditionally, many of them rather apolitical sectors of the population have really come out in force against this. And it's been, I believe, the largest and most ex extensive and sustained protests that I think this country has ever seen. Um, it's been 17 weeks now when um, every Saturday night there have been huge protests all across the country, with the largest one in Tel Aviv, always having hundreds of thousands of people in a country that only has 9 million people. I don't know if you do the math, that would be 
like every week having demonstrations in the U.S. totaling, um, I don't know, many dozens of millions of people. I did the math. Oh, okay. Basically, more than 5% of the entire country's population came out to the, the, the biggest demonstration. And you'd be, you'd be talking about 17, 18 million people in right. uh, the United States that would be the equivalent. And I saw another statistic that closer to 20% had participated at some point in the last few months. So that's more like... You know, 60 million Americans demonstrating, you know, at least once over a few month period. That's only the highlight. But there have been um, much more sustained protests. Almost once a week during the week for several weeks in a row, there's been days of uh, disruption, they've been titled, in which protesters have done things that have been purposefully uh, disruptive, such as blocking main highways and demonstrating. During the day, there have been many thousands of small, uh, spontaneous uh, or semi-spontaneous protests that have targeted the coalition members wherever they go, whether it's they're speaking at some you know event and, and protesters get up and disrupt their speech, or even if they're just going to a restaurant and people show up and, and yell at them. Even more probably influential than that has been military reservists who actually so far haven't actually done anything, but have made very clear threats of, if this passes, we're not going to show up anymore. And that has really kind of shaken up the whole system because the military here is very dependent on the reserve forces, especially the elite units, especially um, the Air Force is dependent on pilots who are no longer in active duty and just show up of their own accord you know, regularly. And these elite units especially have kind of been leading the charge of people saying, we have a contract with the country where we defend it, but we've, you know, we signed up to defend democracy. And if you pass this, we're not going to show up. That definitely is something that the coalition was not expecting because it's really has been sort of a third rail of Israeli politics. It's no, no one has really gone there before, at least not in a successful large scale way. It's kind of been taboo as well. And it was done in a way that um, was substantial enough that I think really, really got the government concerned. That and, and, and the financial issues, which is also high tech companies that have, you know, very publicly, some of them, been joining the protests and been saying, you know, we're, we're leaving the country, we're, we're taking our money out of it. All of that together has formed a really very substantial protest movement that they were not expecting. Even in the United States, you read about Israelis who say they've always been right wing, but they yeah. can't support the proposed legislation and they, they've joined the protests. Uh, I'd like to know how common uh, that is. Also within Israel, what about the two million Arabs, Palestinians and, and, and others who are citizens? They're not in the occupied territories. They're in the, the, the pre-67 borders. They're citizens of Israel. Uh, about 20% of the population, uh, to what degree is there support for, you know, opposition to the uh, judicial reform within the Israeli Arab population? Uh, to what degree have they participated in the protests? So I'll start with how right-wing voters uh, see it. So I spoke earlier about these different groups that are behind the reform, which are the settlers and the ultra-Orthodox and these libertarians and, and kind of the diehard Netanyahu supporters. But the one large and most substantial group that I didn't mention is really just the larger group of Likud supporters, of people who voted for the Netanyahu's party, which is the largest party, and has traditionally always been the largest right-wing party. 
And among that group, I would say it's not so much that people necessarily um, oppose the reform on its on the merits or, uh, as much as it's not something that interests this large group. I just did this morning, actually, I saw a statistic which I thought was very telling, which was if you ask people not if they support it or not, but whether they think the reform is important to them, if it's you know part of their priorities, so 70% of Likud primary voters say it's very important to them. So that's kind of the base of the party and they care because it's become part of the party's political identity at least these past few months. But only 30% of party voters who are a much larger group of people say that they that they care about it. Like these are people who, you know, despite everything I've said so far about why the coalition is interested in it, and despite the fact that it is true that for years they've been demonizing the judiciary, this has not been a core part of the right-wing agenda for years, which has traditionally been about our relationship with the Palestinians and the settlements and maybe financial issues. And, and really, this kind of came out of nowhere. So all I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of party voters who sort of don't understand what this is about and maybe were willing to uh, support it or at least, let's say, haven't gone out and protested against it. But once they see the price that this has been taking from the country at large, uh, I mentioned all of these large opposition uh, steps, which really have taken a toll um, on the economy and on the military, on the security establishment. And there are a lot of people who say, you know, this isn't worth it. We don't, you know, we're not into it. Stop it and, and go do something else. And um, the way we know that is from just, you know, general polling, which shows that if after we've had this deadlock for years in which basically, I don't even want to say right wing and left wing because it's more complicated than that, but really the main dividing line in Israeli politics is if you support Netanyahu or if you're against him. And after years where we've had um, almost 50-50 in this last election, a small majority for the pro-Netanyahu side, um, the last month or so polls have shown that the current opposition, parties that make up the current opposition would grow from 46% to 58% to suddenly actually a quite pronounced majority, which which they, they haven't been at in, in many years. So in fact, this uh, reform and everything that's come about because of it, because of that, this reform has really eroded the base of support for this government, for this coalition, for Netanyahu. And there are a lot of people who don't see what it's good for. And there are a lot of other people, I can't give you numbers here, who um, who also actually actively oppose it that say, you know, I, I am right wing or I, you know, I'm not crazy about the judiciary or something like that. But actually, this reform really takes it way too far. And it doesn't, you know, just do one or two small tweaks. It, it really will stop Israel from being a democracy. So those are voices you hear about the Arab Israelis, who, as you mentioned, are are a large minority, 20% of the uh, country. I don't have official statistics, but what, but my, my very strong impression from following it has been that while, uh, if you ask me, Israeli Arabs would be one of the first groups that will be harmed if this reform, reform passes, because as I've been explaining, the coalition doesn't want to, you know, we can entirely basically neuter the judiciary for no reason. They want to do it so that then they'll be able to carry out their nationalist agenda in ways that are sure to harm the Arab minority and make their position even worse than it already is. However, sadly, I think the main feeling that Israeli Arabs have is alienation from the entire issue and the entire system, perhaps. 
and a quote you do hear a lot of them when they're interviewed is like, this is just an argument between Jews. And there's a lot of cynicism or apathy, and um, they definitely haven't taken a large part of uh, the protests. And that's also definitely partially uh, the fault, if you want to call it that, of the protest movement itself, which is, in, in the mainstream part of it at least, very national and patriotic and even militaristic. And you know the main thing that you see in these in the protests, really the overwhelming thing you see is almost every person is carrying an Israeli flag. There are many, many thousands of Israeli flags, and um, a lot of the speakers are uh, from the security establishment. Um, and very much those are the terms they talk about, which I touched on a little bit earlier. Of you know people who are saying I was in the military for such and such years, I fought for this country, and you know now I'm fighting you know to keep it a democracy which is messages that have a lot of resonance within Jewish-Israeli society, but it's kind of, I hope it's clear to you and I can explain if, if it isn't why Israeli Arabs uh, would feel uh, put off by it and alienated by it. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. 
and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So the protesters are concerned about the erosion of the democratic character of, of Israel, right? That, that the Israel as a democracy is, is at risk. But uh, of course, to a lot of observers, the democratic nature of Israel is partial anyway for Israeli Arabs who face a lot of racism and discrimination, for Palestinians in territories that are occupied by Israel. They're living under military rule. So is there any way that this protest movement is recognizing the link between those sort of injustices, that those anti-democratic natures of the Israeli state and this new assault on, on democracy in Israel? That's a good question. So the short answer is that the mainstream part of the protest movement, I would say, isn't dealing with that issue. But a smaller part of the protest movement definitely is. The, the mainstream part of the protest movement, is, again, is very patriotic and kind of united against this liberal democratic message of, of let's preserve our democracy and is very concerned with talking about things that most Israeli, uh, at least most liberal Israelis can get behind, which are representative democracy, which are women's rights, which are LGBTQ rights, which are have quite wide support in this part of the population, and unfortunately, which are not um, opposition to the occupation, which is a much more divide, divisive concept in Israeli politics. I'll give you an example of how this plays out. In one of the disrupting protests, which I was taking part in, which we were blocking the main highway of Tel Aviv, I was actually interviewed on live radio by a journalist. And they asked me, one of the questions they asked me was, they said, you know, the protest movement seems to be splintering a little bit in that there, it seems to have more demands than just stopping the reform. There's also now demands that have to do with church and state and pushing back against the ultra-Orthodox sector of the population's demands. And, you know, what do you think of that? And my answer was, you know, I said, I think that's fine. I think it's fine that as long as the protest movement is united against the central cause, which is stopping the uh, coup, which is what we call it, it's absolutely acceptable that there'll be other demands as well from smaller groups of some people come out and protest because of church and state. And some people come out and protest against the occupation as well. And I literally just said that word and the interviewer jumped in and said, um, uh, whoa, 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 uh, you know, that word you just used. Uh, aren't you afraid of alienating people by, by using that word, the occupation? Um, you know, I literally hadn't even said anything about the occupation myself. All I had said was that there are some people that that's their motivation. And, and that was enough to sort of get this very sort of paranoid response of, are you sure you want to talk about it? So that's how a lot of people see it, unfortunately. That, that being so, there is a small, all of the large protests, especially the one in Tel Aviv, has a, alongside the main protests, there's a smaller anti-occupation block of um, more, you could say far left, I guess, movements that are very explicitly saying we, unlike maybe other people that are protesting here, we're not protesting in order to preserve the status quo, at least not only. You know, yes, we are against this uh, reform because, because it's a coup and it'll make things a lot worse, but that's not enough. We are protesting to make Israel more democratic, and there are probably different interpretations about what that means. Uh, I do want to mention a activist group that I'm a small part of, I participate in, some, sometimes called um, Standing Together, 
which is a Arab-Jewish joint socialist activist group that's active in all kinds of political struggles for years. And, and, and that's very much been their line throughout these protests. You know, yes, we're going to show up. Yes, we are going to make our voice heard against this um, nationalist, extremist, right-wing government, but we're not just protesting in order to um, maintain the uh, judiciary's power. We're also protesting against the occupation. We're also protesting against the racism, uh, which in a somewhat ironic way has always been there, I guess, but this current government has really made it more apparent than ever. And in that way, you know, by making things worse, at least they've sort of taken the masks off. Uh, I think they have radicalized some people. One event I would note that happened um, two months ago, well, there was a Palestinian terrorist attack, which which killed, uh, I believe, two Israelis, which was terrible. Um, but then in retaliation, there was a large scale, basically a pogrom or a lynch that, that evening of settlers that went to the Palestinian town where this happened and really ran amok there and burned places down and, and killed a person. This hadn't really happened before to, to such a wide extent of hundreds of people participating. And what was even more shocking was that because our current government literally has you know, maybe I didn't stress this enough earlier, but it, it literally has in it Jewish terrorists, I guess, you know, it's the equivalent of having Richard Spencer in Congress. So we have that here, unfortunately. And and some of the members of the coalition, you know, wouldn't condemn this terrible event. And, and some of them even went as far as, as you know, outright supporting it. And I think that really did radicalize a lot of people to see, oh, you know, you know, yes, it's always been bad, but it's going to get much worse if this government has its way. They're going to carry out even worse things. And, and ever since then, a recurring thing that happens at demonstrations is whenever police use force against protesters, which um, I wouldn't say happens that often or in that, such an extreme way, but, but definitely has happened sometimes, a almost immediate refrain that sort of caught on that protesters yell at them at, at the police is, where were you in Khawara? And Khawara is the name of the Palestinian town where this happened, as in, you know, you were coming and using force against us pro-democracy protesters. Where were you when you really were needed, when extremists, basically Jewish terrorists, went out and did this thing and, and you basically stood by and, and waited? And in that sense, I do think that despite everything I said earlier about the protest movement being kind of very afraid of taking on the occupation, I, I do think that the extreme nature of this government has radicalized at least some people and seeing how these issues are all connected and you can't really make this kind of artificial distinction between the government's desire to overthrow democracy and the government's uh, desire to annex the territories and turn us into an apartheid state. Yeah, that, it's not the mainstream, but it is also part of the voices you hear. And, and these protests, uh, despite what I said earlier about the majority of Israel's 20% of Arabs, who I don't think have been participating, certainly that hasn't been large demonstrations, um, these are joint Jewish and Arab protests, smaller ones that have been taking uh, place. But how do you see this standoff? Uh, is the kind of thing where doesn't matter how much people protest, they're just going to ram this thing through? Is there real potential here to take judicial form reform off the table? Was this going to tear apart Israeli society? What? How, how do people see this playing forward? That's kind of the million dollar question. I don't know is the short answer. If you would have asked me a little more than a month ago, I would have said this is heading towards a collision course. The government is completely not showing any signs of backing off. But 
the protest movement is likewise extremely committed and this is kind of going to come to a head. And the sense that that already kind of happened, it happened over a little more than a month ago, I, I should say, and the government has, has been passing the reform. They announced it literally five days after the government was sworn in and they started doing it immediately. And, and you know, to pass a law, it's a process. It takes a while. You have to do it several times, several votes. But they were already quite far along. Most of the laws that are part of this reform had already been halfway through or two thirds of the way through. And um, as they were progressing, the protest movement was getting you know, stronger. And not only were these Saturday night protests growing, but the rest of the more disruptive actions were also increasing. And sort of the climax of this was at the end of March, when following the increasing call of military reservists saying they weren't going to show up, the defense minister, who's part of the government and part of the coalition and part of the ruling party, came out against Netanyahu and against the rest of his party and said, you know, as defense minister, I'm saying we have to stop this now because actually it's making the, the military weak in a way that is dangerous. And when this was a big deal, but then Netanyahu immediately announced he was firing the defense minister for speaking out, even though he had, you know, couched his position not in ideological terms or anything like that, but but in concern for the security of Israel. The night that that happened, he announced it, I believe, at um, 9 p.m. and this was on March 26th on um, just a weekday. And an hour later, perhaps even less, there were, I think, hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets. It wasn't an organized protest. There were no speakers. There was no stage. But it really was very spontaneous and um, and overwhelming. And people in Tel Aviv, uh, where I was, um, people uh, just dozens and dozens of thousands of people streamed into the uh, main highway, which was blocked off, and also were lighting bonfires. And it was, it was really a feeling that, that something fundamental had broken and people were, were reacting very, very emotionally. The whiplash was so immediate and extreme that the government backed off, partially, though. They, they, they didn't say uh, it's off the table. They said, you know, in order to keep Israeli society from tearing apart, which is what seems to be happening, we're tabling this for now and uh, we're calling for talks so that we will pass this in an agreement, which up until then they'd shown no sign of doing and we're just talking about ramming it through with whatever majority they have. So that was a little over a month ago. And since then, there have been these talks between the coalition and the opposition, you know, with the purported goal of coming to some agreed reform that they can all support. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think most people anticipate that it's going to fail, these talks. And then the question is, what will happen? And I think it's unclear, actually, because I think that Netanyahu, he has dueling instincts. Uh, I think he was kind of burned by this earlier attempt, which, which ultimately failed. And I do think that one possibility is, you know, he's never going to come out and say, you know, I was wrong and I'll stop. But he's very good at sort of putting things off and presenting himself as the winner, even as he's losing. So, so one possibility is that he just keeps putting this off and does other things. But another probably more likely possibility is that his coalition members won't let him and they will still try to push through even a partial part of, of this reform, maybe not the whole thing, but, but they definitely the one thing they, they don't seem to want to give up is, is, is appointing their own judges, which I, I, know, I know in the US that basically is the system, but it's not the system we have and it is a very large change. And I think the protest movement is so united and so uh, motivated that I think even a partial move like that would still 
bring people out on the streets in force. I should say people are still out on the street every Saturday night, but um, even more than that. And and then I don't know what will happen. I think uh, it's headed towards um, some kind of clash. You know, one possibility uh, is that the government falls apart over this. If, uh, you know, one part of the coalition decides it isn't into it anymore and another part pulls the other way. You know, personally, I... I hope that that would happen and that we don't have to go through four years of this coalition. But uh, another possibility is definitely what they're hoping realistically is just to wait a little bit to have people forget about it or relax and go home and then pass the reform or pass parts of the reform. I, I don't think that will happen. Though. I think people are committed, but that's what they're trying, I believe. Well, it's about time for us to wrap up this conversation. Thank you, Afishai, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, you're welcome. Good to talk to you guys. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 